Um, yeah, we're looking at this big section of Exodus today. Um, it's six chapters in all, so we are going to be skipping through pretty quickly. Um, there's a lot in here. Hopefully it's going to be helpful if you have your handout with you. Um, I've, I've put a bit of an outline there so that you can try to follow along um, as best as we can. Uh, that'll help you to orient where we are today. Um, but before we start, I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we're going to jump into God's Word together. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that you're here with us now. Um, Lord, we thank you for this building, this school, this place to gather as your people and hear from your word. Uh, would you prepare our hearts and our minds to hear uh, what you would have to say to us? Um, and Lord, would we be changed and shaped by your word, uh, by your spirit that lives within us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love Marvel movies. I'm trying to convince Katie that they're really great. She's not too convinced at the moment, but I love Marvel. I love the excitement, the action, and probably my favorite Marvel movie is Thor Ragnarok. I don't know if you've seen it. It's this awesome movie, and there's this awesome scene in the movie where there's this great battle between Thor and the goddess of death. It's this awesome battle. At one point, Led Zeppelin breaks out and Thor's got his hammer and there's lightning everywhere. If you've seen it, you know it. If you haven't seen it, you should know it. <laughs> and this battle takes place at Asgard, the house of the gods. And whilst this is a fictional place, obviously, in Marvel, this concept that they've put together, actually Asgard, the place itself, is actually based on the true religious beliefs of the Northern Europeans. The Vikings believed in this place called Asgard, where the gods lived. Gods like Odin, Thor, Loki, all the Marvel characters. This place called Asgard was in this other realm, this big city where all the gods would dwell and hang out, and it was distant from all the people that lived on earth. And many religions throughout history have had these different places where the gods live. The Vikings had Asgard. The Greeks had Mount Olympus. And in Egypt, gods could pretty much live wherever they liked. There were gods of the sky, there were gods of the underworld, there were gods of the Nile, and there were even gods that lived on earth as people, like Pharaoh. See, many people have wondered, where do the gods live? Is it in the sky? Is it here with us? Where are they? And as we come to Exodus, we've been on this journey with the Israelites from Exodus, from, from the Exodus from Egypt. They've been in Egypt and now God's delivered them out into the wilderness and they've come to this mountain where God has descended in a cloud. And I imagine maybe the Israelites were thinking these questions. Where does this God live? Maybe this God lives on Mount Sinai. That's where he's come down. Maybe that's where he lives. But I think the answer to this question, where does God live, in our chapters today, it comes to say that God lives with his people. We're going to see in these chapters, there's six of them, and there's quite a lot to get through. But in these chapters, we're going to see a God who doesn't live in Asgard. He doesn't live in the underworld or in the Nile. He doesn't just come for a time as Pharaoh and then leave. No, this is a God who lives with his people. And there's a lot of detail in these chapters. God kind of 
shows the people that he lives with them in a bit of a funny way. He gives them lists of things to build, the tabernacle, the dimensions, arcs, lampstands, there's priestly garments. There's a lot in these chapters. Hopefully you've had a read of them this week. If not, it might be a bit confusing. But hopefully to help us orient where we are today, I want us to think about this whole passage as a painting. See, a painting is made up of many brushstrokes, many detailed. Every detail has its place. But the painting isn't about the brushstrokes in the end. It's about stepping back and looking at it as a whole. See, when I went to London a few years ago, I got to go to the London Art Gallery and see some Vincent van Gogh paintings. I know, hopefully most of you know van Gogh. He's known for these really detailed brushstrokes. And you stand up close and you can see every brushstroke in the painting. But it would be a waste to just look at the brushstrokes without stepping back and taking in the picture as a whole. So today I want to look a little bit at the brushstrokes in this passage. I want to look at the details that are there. And I'm not even going to cover half of them. There's so much in this passage. But what I really want to do is be able to step back after looking at these brushstrokes, these details, and take in the painting that it, the painting that it paints for us. This painting that shows a God who lives with his people. I think this is something that we need to have a look at today as Christians because sometimes, if we're honest, we can feel a bit like God can live a bit far away from us. I know there's times for me when I feel like God just doesn't feel near. He feels like he might be in the clouds somewhere. He might be living in some fancy city in the sky. But today my hope is that if you're feeling that way, if you feel like God is distant, if you feel like maybe he's disinterested in you, I hope today in these chapters of Exodus you come to see and marvel at the God that lives with his people. So on your outlines there, you can see a heading that says brushstrokes. There are details that we're going to look at. And the first few details we'll see in the first couple of chapters are details about this tabernacle that the people are to build. We had it read earlier. 25 begins with the people of Israel needing to take up an offering for the Lord. The Lord says to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And what's this offering for? Well, it's to build a house, a tabernacle, a dwelling place for God. If you look at verses 8 and 9, you see there it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell amongst them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, if you're wondering what is a tabernacle, well, literally a tabernacle is just a dwelling place or a tent. It's a, it's a place to live. And if you're thinking a tent doesn't sound like the greatest place for this great and mighty God to live, well, as you'll see in the details coming, this isn't the sort of tent that you grab off the shelf at Anaconda. No, this is a marvellous tent. This is a house fit for a king, full of detail and beauty. But the first detail, the first brushstroke in this painting I want us to notice is that this is a house. This is God's house amongst his people. God is making his house with his people here. And then secondly, 
we see that this house, this tabernacle that's being built, it's actually a reminder of Eden, the Garden of Eden in many ways. If you look with me at verse 22 of chapter 5, it says there, after describing the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark where God is going to be, they make an atonement cover for the Ark, and then it says this in verse 22, There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my, give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now cherubim, you might not know what those are either, but cherubim are these winged angelic creatures. And we've heard about cherubim in another place in the Bible. See, back at the start of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden because of sin. They can no longer have access to the tree of life. And what guards the entrance for them getting back into the presence of God to be with his people are cherubim. There are two cherubim guarding the entrance to the garden. And whereas in the Garden of Eden, the cherubim were guarding the entrance back to God, here we see that in the tabernacle, between two cherubim again, God is making a place to meet with the people again. These cherubim guarded entrance to the tree of life back in Genesis. And the tree of life is another thing that we see picked up in the tabernacle. So let me read for you the description of the lampstand that is going to be in this tent. I want you to just let the imagery here wash over you and picture what this lampstand looks like. I'm going to read from verse 31 of chapter 5 onwards. You can read along if you like. It says this, Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair. Six branches in all. The buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand, hammered out of pure gold. See, what is this lampstand, this lamp that's going to light up the sanctuary, give light to the tent of meeting? What does it look like? It looks like a tree, right? Branches and blossoms and buds. This picture of Eden, the Garden of Eden, where God dwelled with his people, where people could walk freely with their God. We see this picture in the tent that God is making, this house that God is making with his people. So as people, as the priests would walk into the tabernacle, he would see this imagery and be reminded time and again of the way to God, the way back to the garden where God was with his people. God would meet him between the cherubim. There would be the tree, the lampstand giving light. It would be this picture of Eden for God's people. So they're the first two details I wanted to point out. This is a house for God. This is a reminder of Eden where God dwelt with his people. And the third about the tabernacle is that this tabernacle, 
goes with the people wherever they go. I've given you the verses there in your handout, and if you look up these verses, you'll see they all describe different loops and poles that need to be built into the tables and to the altars so they can be picked up and moved. So this isn't just a tent that's going to be set up at the foot of Mount Sinai and left there. No, this house for God where he dwells is going to go with the people wherever they go. God is ready to travel wherever his people go. So that's the tabernacle. That's a very quick summary of the first two chapters. But what about the priests? In chapters 28 and 29, we get details about the priestly garments that need to be made for the priests, and we get all these details about the consecration they need to go through, the way they need to be prepared to be able to minister in this tabernacle. And I want to notice a few more details here. The first is that the priests are there to represent the people. In the description of the outfits that the priests need to wear, there's this beautiful imagery of the priests carrying the names of the people of God with them when they go into the presence of God in the tabernacle. There's three verses that I want us to notice. If you look at verse 9 to 12 of chapter 28 in your Bibles, you can flip there. We read this. This is the ephod, which is a, a shoulder piece for the priests. It says, Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. Six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. And then again, if you look down in verse 21, we get this imagery again in the breastpiece. Verse 21 says this, There are to be twelve stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the twelve tribes. And if you flip to verse 29, it says, Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastplate, on the breastpiece of decision as a continual memorial before the Lord. So the details about what the priests had to wear picture this idea that the priests are carrying with them the people of God when they go into the tabernacle. And notice that the people of God here are represented by precious gemstones. There's this beautiful picture of a few weeks ago we heard how God wanted his people to be his treasured possession. And here the people are gemstones on a vest and on shoulders. So the first detail about the priests we can notice here, the first brushstroke if you like, is that the priests represent the people. They carry the people with them when they go to meet with God. But the problem is that priests are just people too. See, people have sin. And back in the garden, it was the sin of Adam and Eve that kicked them out of God's presence. 
We've seen as they came to Sinai, God warns them, don't come close to me because if you're sinful, you'll burn up and you'll die. You must die because God is a perfect God and people have sin. So the next detail we notice is that God actually provides a way to deal with the priest's sin so that they can actually go into the presence of God again. We get it in chapter 29. It's this long process of consecration that takes place. And three times we see that the priests need to lay their hands on an animal and the animal needs to be slaughtered. I've again put these verses in your outline. We can read them in chapter 29, uh, in verse 10, just before verse 10, but from verse 10 it says then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons and it says this in verse 10 bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head slaughter in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting and the other two verses there verse 15 and 19 repeat this idea take your hands lay them on the animal and have the animal slaughtered in your place There's this process here described of passing the judgment of sin from the priest to an animal, to a sacrifice, which then allows them to enter the Holy of Holies and be with God. And this detail here, this brushstroke in the painting, reminds the people that they still have a problem. God is coming to live with his people, and that's wonderful, but his people are still sinful. And we've seen the punishment for sin has been death throughout the Bible. People can't live with a holy God if they have sin within them. So as this priest would practice this practice, it was a reminder of the sin that they had and the barrier between them and God. But it also showed them that God was making a way through sacrifice. So the priests carried the names of Israel with them when they went into the tabernacle. The priests had to find a way to deal with their sins so they could be with God. And then there's more details in chapter 30 about different parts of the tabernacle. There's details about the altar for incense and different things. There's so much detail in this passage. I'd love to spend the next two hours describing it all, but we really don't have time. So I want to take you to chapter 31. And I want to notice two last details here, two last brushstrokes in this great painting of these six chapters. So in chapter 31, we have, it was read earlier, a description of how this tabernacle is going to be built. And it's going to be built by this man, Bezalel, son of Uri. And we read from verse 2 that God has chosen this man, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And God says this, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. See, in the building of this tabernacle, the skills that are needed to build this tabernacle are provided by God's Spirit. And again, I think this harks right back to Genesis. At the start of Genesis, when God was creating the new world for people, it was the Spirit that dwelt there and hung above the waters. And this here is the first description we have of someone having God's Spirit within them in the Bible. And what is it used for? It's to build a new 
tent, a tent that looks like Eden, a new place for people to dwell with God. God's Spirit is at work here to bring people back to God. So it's His Spirit that is going to build this tent, build this way back to Himself. And then finally, the last detail I want us to notice notice is the rest that we find from verse 12. See, from verse 12 onwards, we have God reminding the people of Israel to keep His Sabbath. The Sabbath was always meant to be a day of rest where people could be with God and dwell with Him. And this is ultimately the reason for all of this. It's no surprise that we get to the end of all of these descriptions about how to build the tabernacle, what the priests need to do, and we end with the Sabbath, with the rest. We end on the note that all of this is to win back the rest that's been taken from us. See, in Egypt they were slaves to Pharaoh, they had no rest, and God is saving his people to rest with him. God is building his house amongst his people. He's building a house so he can dwell with them. This house looks like Eden, a reminder of where they used to be, where humanity used to be in relationship with God without sin getting in the way. The priests are going to carry the people of God back to God and there's going to be a way to deal with their sin through sacrifice. There's this marvellous picture that's being painted here in these chapters. There's lots of detail, but there's also a great picture. And I think that picture is a picture of a wonderful God, a saving God, a saving God who lives and dwells with his people. And this picture of these six chapters fits into an even bigger picture. You see on your outline there, I've given you a little sort of timeline or arrows pointing to different things. And we see there that the tabernacle is right at the start of it. We have Eden where God was with his people. The story begins there. But the people are cast out from Eden, so what does God do? Well, he creates a tabernacle for them, a place for them to come and meet with him. If we read on into the Old Testament, they'll eventually build a temple where God will be and God will dwell with his people. And then we get into the good stuff on the second half of that arrow. See, the biggest and clearest picture, the biggest and clearest painting we get of this God who dwells with his people comes in Jesus Christ. I want to take you to a couple of verses in the New Testament where we see this really clearly. If you want to flip with me, jump to Matthew, the start of Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew verse 1, I'll jump there with you. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we read in the story of Jesus and his birth, we read this. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And if you didn't know what Emmanuel means, well, hopefully Matthew puts it in there, in brackets, which means God with us. See, Jesus' very name is literally God with us. 
God with his people. And if that's not clear enough, jump to John chapter 1. In this famous beginning to John's Gospel, we read in verse 14, the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now this word here, dwelling, is the same word that's translated in the Old Testament as tabernacle. This could literally say, and the Word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. An incredible picture that brings us right back to where we are in Exodus today. A picture of this great and wonderful God who has always desired to live with his people. And you might be thinking, well, okay, God came and lived in Jesus. Jesus died, he rose again, but then he ascended into heaven. What now? Where is God now? Well, we know, don't we, that Jesus didn't leave us by ourselves. No, he gave us his spirit to be with us while he was gone. And throughout the whole Bible, God's presence with his people is described in many different ways as a fire. We've seen it in Exodus when Moses met God, it was a burning bush. When the people travelled through the desert, it was a pillar of fire that led them at night. When they come to Sinai, the mountain's on fire and there's smoke billowing up. This fire, this all-consuming fire, has always represented God and his presence and his holiness. Then if we turn to Acts 2, the people of God are waiting for this, this Holy Spirit to come. And Luke records for us that they are there waiting in the upper room. And what does he see? Well, he sees something like fire dancing on the heads of people. See, with the Holy Spirit now, God's presence can be with you. There's no tabernacle anymore. There's no temple or a special place where we have to go. Now, the Holy Spirit can be within us. God has made his home in us. And the New Testament is full of pictures of this. Here's one from 1 Corinthians 6:19. Paul says this, "Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God?" See, as Christians, we are the temple, we are the tabernacle, we are the place where God can now dwell in us. And all of this is possible because, what, because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So remember how the priests had to lay their hands on animals and pass their sin onto the animal to be sacrificed? Well, now Jesus has paid for our sin on the cross. We have laid our hands on Jesus' head for him to take the punishment so that we can now be in God's presence again. And we can be in God's presence not just at certain times when we prepare properly and go into the tabernacle. No, we can now be in God's presence always because Jesus has died once and for all to cover our sin, to allow us to be close to God. In many ways, Jesus bared the names of us on his shoulders, on his breastpiece, when he went to the cross and died for us. 
But see, this isn't actually the end of the big picture, is it? There's one more arrow on that diagram. And that is our final home with God. I want to take us to one more. This is the last flip of the Bible, I promise. Go all the way to end to Revelation 21. Just flip to the end of your Bibles and maybe go one page back. In Revelation 21, we get a new picture, a new painting that describes God's dwelling place, this God who lives with his people. And it comes in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. I'll read it for you now. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. See, this is probably the most beautiful painting of all, isn't it? And in there, there's the details of right back at Exodus. Again, that word dwelling place is that word to tabernacle, to come down and live with the people. So this tabernacle in Exodus is the first picture we get. But we get many more in the temple, in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit. And we look forward to one day living with God when he comes down to be with us and be our God. So where does God live? Well, I hope today you've seen that he lives with his people. He always has, he always does, and he always will. This is not a God who lives in some far realm like Asgard or Mount Olympus. No, this is a God who lives right here. This is a God who can go wherever you go, who is with you always. That's the God that we come to church to worship. That's the God who we read our Bibles and learn about. That is our God. Our God is not a distant God. He's not a disinterested God. He's a God who gave up everything so that he could live with you. So I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. I'm just going to give you a moment. You'll see a little bit of space at the bottom of your outline to reflect on what it means that God lives here right now. Maybe you're feeling like God lives far away. He's not close to you. I think we've seen today that God is right here. God's in this very room with each and every one of us. So I encourage you to take a quiet moment as the music starts. We'll give ourselves a minute or two and just ponder that picture. Ponder the picture that's been painted today of this wonderful, almighty God who creates a way to live with his people. I'll let the music start and we'll sing in a moment. Mm -hmm. 